Let's pray together. Thank God for His goodness once again. God, this morning as we come into Your presence and as we come before You to worship You, we pray that You would receive this praise because it is praise that is due to You and to You alone. God, this morning as we find ourselves in different places, as some of us find gratitude very easy this morning and others of us more difficult, uh, that's what this community of faith is really here to remind us of is that Uh, No matter where we find ourselves, there are some among us who can remind us of your goodness. There are always some among us who have received great blessings, God, that remind others that there's a day on its way when all of us will be able to give that praise to you face to face. We long for that day, God. But in the meantime, we want to live lives of gratitude, lives of praise that honor you. And so, God, would you teach us the way of gratitude? Would you teach us? This week, as a reminder, around meals and tables, that your bounty is full and gracious. And we give back that gratitude to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Well, later this week, many of us will find ourselves eating entirely too much food, gathered around tables with people that we love, and if we're honest, some that we might tolerate. This is a good week in many ways, and it's a challenge for others. But we do this as a means of giving thanks, don't we? Thanksgiving is a holiday intended to remind us of all the blessings that God has given to us to give honor and glory and praise to the one who deserves it most. But every ritual begins with a story, doesn't it? And sometimes we continue rituals without thinking back to the story, but this morning I want to remind us of the story of what we'll celebrate on Thursday. In September of 1620, there was a ship that left uh, from Plymouth, England with a group of uh, pilgrims that were on their way pointing their ship to the New World. And as they arrived about a month later and as the winter commenced on, there were 102 passengers that began the journey, but only about half of those lasted through that first winter. As they found their way to land, they found some Uh, People uh, that were natives to the land that really helped them through that first year, helped them uh, harvest what was needed. And so in thanks for what God had done, even in the midst of the struggle and the difficulty and all the funerals that they had been to that last year, they also remembered the good that God had brought to them. And so William Bradford in the fall of 1621 had a feast that was thrown and years later it was commemorated as a holiday in our nation to remember all that God had done for us. And this is the story that began this ritual. It was a feast that was reminiscent of the feast that we read about a few weeks ago in the Old Testament. That when God brings the harvest, we give thanks for the harvest that He's provided. So even through the losses that that community experienced, they did not keep from giving thanks to God for all that God had done in that difficult season. And on Thursday this week, I'd encourage you to listen. Listen to the conversation around your table. Because in many ways, we've evolved past those original settlers, haven't we? We've tamed the land uh, and taken the frontier. We've gone from the East Coast to the West here in America and done well. But in some ways, we've devolved, haven't we? Because this is what I find about my own life, is the older I get, the more that our family settles into life as it is, the harder it is to be grateful for the things that we used to be so easily to give God praise for. 
And I, I think it's time that we turn that back, that we acknowledge the blessings that we receive, because sometimes progress doesn't make us more grateful, does it? And that's the challenge of God giving us blessings, is if we're not careful, we take these blessings for granted. So this morning, I want to encourage you to think back to a simpler time in your life. Think back, for instance, if you would, to the first time that you entered the gates of a theme park. Maybe it was Six Flags here in Texas, or maybe it was Disneyland or Disney World. I grew up in San Diego, and so Disney World, Disneyland was the first place that I went to that I can remember walking through the gates. I, I still remember walking through the gates for the first time, and my thought was, well, I knew there was a place like this that existed. I always knew it. Like, this is a perfect world. The streets are just so well manicured. The cotton candy tastes so good. The rides are so fun. And uh, several times over those years we lived in San Diego, we'd return back to that same place in Anaheim, and there was a joy as we entered those gates each time, just a gratitude that welled up that was so simple and easy to do. And earlier this year, our family took our kids to Disneyland for the first time. And what was amazing wasn't my experience like it had been. I, I'd kind of taken for granted that initial experience. But what was amazing was to watch my kids experience it for the first time. Watch their eyes light up as they met Mickey Mouse, this famous character they'd seen on their iPads all these years. And they got to meet Chip and Dale, and they got to, they got to meet all of these characters, and they got to ride these rides, and they got to eat that $9 cotton candy. And now, I mean, now I know why it was so good. I mean, $9, it better be good, right? But looking through their eyes, I saw something that I somehow couldn't muster myself because I'd grown accustomed to a certain way to expect things. And I realized the price tag was much more, and there's something about that price tag that you see this differently. But, but to see it through your kid's eyes for the first time reminds you of what it was like. Remember back maybe to the early days in your marriage, for those of you who are married or have been. You remember those early days? You remember the commitment you made to one another? You remember when eating out was a huge deal? Like, you knew that the budget was only going to allow for maybe one or two times out a month, right? And that time you got to, you didn't have to wash dishes. You got to order off the menu, and it might have been a meal you were sharing together. But you remember that feeling of going out and just savoring every bite and just taking as much time as you could early in your marriage. It was a joy to do that. And yet today, it's just kind of something we do without a thought for many of us, right? We kind of rush through dinner and rush home, and we take these things for granted. Do you remember the first couch or piece of furniture you bought or received? Our first couch was a hand-me-down from my aunt and uncle, and it was a floral design, and it was awful looking, but we were proud of that couch. We got a place to sit in our house. You remember that first purchase you made? It was like, oh, that was a hard decision to, to put that money out there, but the gratitude that you had from, this is ours, this is something we're building together. You remember the first bed that you got? I mean, it was, it was a queen bed for us, and we were so happy with that. In fact, it was the first time we didn't have to say goodbye at night. We were going to sleep under the same roof, and it was just an amazing feeling of we're building this life together. And then this last year, we bought a king bed, and this was a miracle in our marriage. This is a great thing, right? But now we go to a, now we go to a hotel room, and if a queen's all that's there, we, it's like we might have to touch each other in bed, right? I mean, while we're sleeping. It's like this nuisance, right? I mean... 
think back to these simpler times. I, don't go where you're going with that. I know where you might be going with that. But think back to those simpler times. There's an ease of gratitude that comes in the early stages of things, isn't there? There's just this joy that wells up with these new experiences, with seeing things in a whole new light, in a whole new way. And sometimes progress has a way of killing gratitude, doesn't it? It's like the more we progress, the more we accumulate, the less we know how to give gratitude for the things that we receive. So what do we do about that? What do we do about this increasing quality of life and this decreasing gratitude that seems to go along with it? Because often what we think is, well, once that gratitude kind of goes away, what we need is we need new and better things. And if we were to get new and better things, then we'd experience gratitude again, right? And so we go through that project sometimes. We get rid of the old floral couch and we buy a new one. And for a season, it feels good again, doesn't it? We're grateful that finally we could get rid of that eyesore now, the comfort of the leather couch. Can you imagine? We could have never done this early in our marriage, but soon the newness kind of wears away, doesn't it? Or the new car, right? Remember that first car you got? I mean, just the gratitude of this old beater that you got for the first time. You, you'd worked and worked to, to finally get this car, and now to think I can drive on my own. This is a great blessing. But that goes away over time. Holly and I experienced this a few years ago. When we were in college, we got married, and and boy, I remember those days eating out. It was a big deal. But we dreamed of a day when we would be able to live into our callings, what we felt like God was really pushing us to do. I dreamed of a day where I'd be able to lead a church as the preacher. And I didn't know where that would be, but we we prayed, God, if you're calling us to this, we long and look forward to that day. And I went to years of school to be able to get to that place to finally be able to preach at a church. And, and Holly was looking forward to the day where she'd be able to be a mom and she'd have kids of her own, not just those that she babysat. And, and, and we longed for that day we would get to that place where finally those dreams would be accomplished. And I remember being called for the first time to a church and then we had two kids. I, I remember this feeling vividly. It's like this is the place we'd longed we'd get to. And we knew when we got to this place we would be so grateful and so happy. When we looked around us, we actually realized we were in a little bit of a funk when we finally got the very things we'd longed for. We were in Denver in a large city we'd hoped to get to. We were preaching. We had two kids, and we looked around, and we realized this is not what we thought it would be. Like We thought this would be the fix to all of our problems, and yet it's so easy to look around and see that all we'd worked for didn't lead to the happiness that we thought it would create. You see, sometimes we associate gratitude with once we become happy, once we accumulate all these things, then we'll be grateful for what we receive. But what I found over and over again is when you lay those things out, gratitude sometimes isn't the result of what we thought it would be. Because happiness doesn't necessarily lead itself to gratitude. So we had two options at that point. We could either say, okay, we've, we've done what we want to do, now we've got to create greater dreams. And if we can accomplish those dreams, you know, for kids and and then moving back to Texas and, and then a bigger house and a bigger car, then we'll be grateful, right? Have you ever played this game before, right? And it just, that project is, is, is empty. But the other option was to realize that our lack of gratitude wasn't something external to us that was wrong. It wasn't that we didn't have these things or we hadn't accumulated this kind of thing. Eventually we had to realize the problem lies within us. It's an internal issue, not an external one. The gratitude is easier, not easier the more you have. Gratitude is an inner discipline that we begin 
to, to develop ourselves. The problem wasn't external, it was internal. And it's easy to lose the awareness that everything in life is a gift if we have eyes to see it that way. Everything is a gift. The, the breath that you breathe in right now, that your body needs, that oxygen, is a gift from God. And yet over time, you don't even think about that. You don't even think about the gift that it is. We just come to accept it as the way things are. The, the air conditioning, that sometimes is too hot or too cold in this room. We're, it's a gift, isn't it? The children that we have, they're gifts from God. The, the relationships that we're able to engage in that are difficult at times and easier at others, these are gifts. That the good things that God brings into our life, those are gifts that we praise Him for. But if we have eyes to see, even the hard things in life are gifts, aren't they? Because without those hard times and without those difficulties, we wouldn't know the good times without them. What would it be like to, to internally develop this skill, this muscle, to be able to be grateful for the things that God gives, the good and the bad, to give Him the glory, to give Him the praise through it all. Since the beginning of time, humans have made it our project to become happy. And the way we often do that is to accumulate more things to achieve happiness. But it has never worked. In fact, think back to the story of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve. That's the story of the, their story, isn't it? This, this thought that if we could have something more that we don't have, then maybe we'd be finally fulfilled. So God gave Adam and Eve, they gave them this incredible garden. Everything they needed was in that garden. There was one tree that was off limits. And what happens when you partake of everything that you're able to and you discover you're not happy, you tend to think the one thing you can't have is the thing that would fulfill you. And so that's exactly what happens in the story. They see that this tree has, provides food and it's pleasing to the eye. And maybe if we just had the thing we can't, then maybe we'd be fulfilled in a way. Maybe God's trying to hold something back from us. And to me, that's the definition of lust, isn't it? I mean, lust comes from a deep dissatisfaction with life. And, and, and lust starts with this thought that somewhere in our head, that, that, that if we had fill in the blank, well, then I'd be fulfilled. If I had that, if I had him, if I had her, if I had it, whatever it is, fill in the blank of this desire that says, if I could just have that one thing, if I could get to the end of this, if I could have enough money at the end of the month, if I could have these things, then I'd be fulfilled. I mean, even the wealthy answer the question, how much more money do you need to be happy with the answer just a little bit more? And this is why gratitude is so central to the life that God has made us for. But until we, until we can center ourselves on what we do have, on what God has provided us, on the life we do get to live, we'll be constantly looking for another life. Now, we all have people in our, life, uh, in our lives, and we'll see some of them this week, that fill us up, don't we? I mean, you know these people. When they enter the room, it's like there's more fresh air in the room. There's more life, more energy. You look forward to seeing those people. When they come into the room, you're, you greet them gratefully. You're so happy to see them. You want to emulate your life after them. But there are other people that deplete the room of energy, aren't there? Um, there there's people that, that they enter in and it's as if chaos begins to be more so, as if peace is harder to find. You probably have images in your head of the kind of people I'm talking about, right? People who, who fill you up, people you look forward to later this week, that you're excited to see them, excited to be around the table, and there's others that you're hoping they're on the other end of the table. 
And it, it's easy to, to think about this and struggle with, what, what, is it, what, what is it about these people that I'm drawn to? What is it about these people I'd like to pattern my life after? What virtues do they have that I want to begin to emulate? And what is it about the people that drain me, that deplete me, that I don't want to pass on? others. And this is the thing I think is constant about the people that I want to emulate, the people who give me life, the people who fill a room. I think gratitude is one of the virtues that is a constant in the lives of people that I desire to be around and I want to emulate. It's not that that's the only virtue that they have, but I would just, uh, of the people you have in your mind right now that you want to emulate, that you want to be more like, I'm guessing gratitude is something that they live out in their own lives. Am I right? We are drawn to people who have, are, are gracious. We are drawn to people who express gratitude. And the early church experienced this phenomenon. They were people of influence. The early church had influence. And one of the reasons it had influence was because of the gratitude that was there in that community early on. In Acts chapter 2, we see this story. If you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 2. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture that most of us have probably pretty well memorized, right? I mean, this is, this is where it all happened at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, there's this story about Jesus. The chapter before says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait in Jerusalem and, and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you, and then you'll be my, my missionaries throughout the world in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus says before he leaves earth. And so they wait in Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, they experience the Holy Spirit coming down on them. Several interesting things happen, right? I mean, there's the sound like the rushing of a violent wind. Imagine that sound that's there. There's, there's tongues of fire that are resting on some of the people who are there. They're speaking in other tongues. They're speaking in other languages they don't know. The Spirit somehow allows them to do this so that all who are present can understand the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and there's a response to all that that happens. 3,000 commit themselves to Jesus. 3,000 are baptized on that day at Pentecost. Amazing scene. I would have loved to have been there, right? But the miracles don't stop at the end of verse 38. The miracles continue on as we read on. And so I want to read in, in verse 42 about the community that develops on the backside of Pentecost, about what happens after the 3,000 are baptized. It's just as miraculous. Let's read this together. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is incredible stuff, isn't it? Not just the signs and wonders that are going on in the beginning part of the chapter, but this is miraculous stuff in the second part. All the believers were together. They're meeting in one another's homes. They're breaking bread. They're, they're attending to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship with one another. There's people who are selling their property. Get this, selling their property so that those who don't have property who are poor would have enough. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But perhaps the most unbelievable miracle is this passage that I still don't know how this could ever work out. Maybe it's only a move of the Spirit. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I, we can't even get our, our family to get on the same page, right? But here are these 3,000 people who are baptized. They come together and they're, they have everything in common. They're all together. Let's read on, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad 
and sincere hearts. Every single day they're together. What are they doing? They're breaking bread together. Uh, It's the same language used in Acts 20 verse 7 that talks about every first day of the week they'd get together, they would break bread together. There seems to be some kind of talk about what Jesus taught them to do together, right? They, They broke bread. This is communion. This is the Lord's Supper. They may be sharing in a larger context of a meal, but they're remembering the story of Jesus as they come together. It's drawing them together in community. And how do they break bread? They break bread. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In other words, they took the body and blood of Jesus with gratitude. They had glad and sincere hearts. They're thankful. And how could you not be thankful? These are the very people who had walked around with Jesus. They'd seen Him do miracle after miracle. They watch Him die on the cross. And what happens three days later? He raises to life. And now the old covenant and the law, those things are done away with. Now it's Jesus and His new covenant, a new heart that's been given, a spirit that's been poured out. How could you not be grateful after you've seen the miracle that's happened? Many of them had witnessed this whole scene. So the Lord's Supper becomes not something they're commanded to be gracious at or or to be kind and show gladness to one another, to be of one mind. No, this is just the inevitable result of a people who experience death and get to see resurrection on the other side. This is the response. It's not something that has to be commanded. This is the response of a grateful people. And I would love for our church to look more like 42 to 47, wouldn't you? To be in such community together that daily we're meeting each other for coffee and around tables. That that we had everything in common with one another. That we get to see these miraculous works done. So what is the outcome of all this? They're gracious. They show gratitude. What's the outcome of their gratitude? I don't think this is just something that happens in verse 47. I think any community of faith that lives as a gracious people, that learns the discipline of gratitude, I think this is the outcome that will be the result. Verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, like I said earlier, gratitude's like a magnet, isn't it? I mean, the very people that we want to most emulate, that we want to be most like, the people who fill up a room with more oxygen and more life, they're people who we're drawn toward. Because gratitude is something that we want to emulate in our own lives. It's something we're just so grateful when others are grateful for us. It's a great gift. And I think what we see in the early church is this gratitude that they have for the life of Jesus Christ, this gratitude draws people to them. They enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. I think this is the result of a church, of a people, of a family that see gratitude as a core response to the good news of Jesus Christ. People are drawn to people and to churches that that display gratitude. But I know some of you may be thinking, that's great, Colin. That's a great theological thing. But how do you work this out in your everyday life? Because maybe you're saying, I grew up in a family where gratitude was not a part of the the deal. We saw the glass half empty. I never saw my parents say one positive word about anything. It wasn't gratitude in our family. So how how would we turn the tide? How would we show our kids a different way of life? And I, I want to encourage you this week as we're moving towards Thanksgiving with several ways that I think we become a more grateful people. I think there's several, several ways that happens. But first, before we get into those kind of specifics and the practical nature of that, one of the ways that we develop virtue of gratitude is not by looking to our own interests, but looking to the interests of others. What I've noticed is that many of the vices in our lives, many of the difficulties and challenges and sins come as a result of a self-focused um, life. 
when we're focused on ourselves and what we do have and what we don't have, many of the vices that occur in my life happen when I'm focused only on myself. When I think about pride happening, pride occurs in my life when I'm focused on others and, and I'm focused on myself and I think, wow, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm actually uh, better than some people in these ways. I, I develop this pride about myself and it's a self-focused vice that begins kind of drawing in on myself. Anger. Anger happens when I have expectations of others. And I think that I'm not getting enough of the pie. I think that I'm not, I should be getting something that I'm not getting. And I look to my own interests and I realize I'm not getting everything I need. And so my response is to respond with anger that God isn't doing all he should or that others around me aren't. Lust is a result of this. Lust is the belief that I, if I just had fill in the blank, then I'd finally be fulfilled. Again, that's focused on ourselves and what we need. Greed is the belief that if I just had more, then my needs would be met. But gratitude is not a self-focused virtue. Gratitude can only be developed when we humble ourselves and when when we begin to look at those who are around us. So I think part of how we develop this gratitude is not by being drawn in on ourselves, but by looking to others around us and beginning to have eyes to see things we don't see when we only focus on ourselves. It's amazing how often in my life I can move from serving someone else, thinking this is all about someone else, to allowing that service opportunity to become about me, whether that's about pride or whether that's uh, being frustrated in the moment of trying to serve. But just confessionally, when I got into ministry, my goal, my desire, my calling was caught up in trying to bless the lives of others, of trying to tell the story of Jesus Christ so that others might come into contact with Jesus, be, become in contact with the Holy Spirit, and have their lives transformed. I went into this so that I could bless the lives of others. But what I noticed after a few years of ministry when I was in Denver is that this became a whole lot more about me than it became about the people I got into this to serve. I mean, it was easy to see the vision that God was calling us toward. It was easy to see this. And people were no longer the end of ministry, the goal of ministry. It wasn't my goal to help serve them anymore. It became, how can these people accomplish the vision that God has called me to? It didn't seem selfish. Because it was, well, God's called this grand vision. If people would just catch a vision of it, they wouldn't get in the way of it. Then, And it was a chapter in a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together, that broke me. It's chapter one in that book that talked about young preachers. They, they tend to destroy the community that they're a part of because they love their dream for their community more than they love the community itself. I mean, that was a hard word in that season for me. Because what I realized was why I went into this whole thing got lost in the midst of of trying to lead a congregation without loving the very people that God had called me to love. i got to tell you, I had to repent of this. I had, to, I had to reach out to my congregation and begin to love them in new ways and realize that every single person here is important. And when I, when I came to Greenville Oaks, just a couple of years before that, I began to develop this discipline of looking at people not as people who can get the church somewhere, but as people who are called and or who are made in the image of God, who God loves every single one of them and is calling them to a step forward. How do, how do I love them well enough that they can see all that God has called them to be? And, and, and so I, I confess that, but I want to allow this to be a warning to you as well. Because it's amazing how you go into an industry or you, you have children or you get married and, and you think, I, I'm doing this because I want to bless people's lives. Think about the calling that you feel like you have, whether that's at church or whether that's in your job and your vocation, you got into that probably to help people is my guess. Whether that's teaching or coaching or trying to help people find jobs or, or making sure the space that you live in is clean or the, the business that you clean each week is clean. You did this for people. You did this 
you were called on a mission to help someone. I, I believe that about our hearts. Like we're drawn into things because God calls us to help the people. But somewhere along the way, it's easy to lose that, isn't it? It's easy to see people as ways to get somewhere. It's easy to, to, to think, start climbing a ladder and starting to step onto people. But I'm here to tell you, your mission is not to accomplish tasks in your job. Your mission at your job, at your work, at whatever it is that God has called you to do is for people. Your mission is people. And in the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of trying to get where we're trying to get to, it is so easy to step on people and to see people as less than made in the image of God. But the people that you are called to bless may be in a difficult season right now. It may be in a difficult work. And I want to call you back to that. Call you back to that first love. God called you to the place you're in to bless people. So I, I, I don't know what that looks like in your life right now. I've confessed what that looked like for me, but I want to draw you back to what you were originally called to do. Maybe right now you're trying to find your way out of a job, but what if God has you where you are in your job or whatever it might be? It may not be job, it may be something else. He has you placed where you are in your neighborhood that you're trying to move out of to bless the people around you. God always calls his missionaries. and That's not just people across the world, that's you. He calls you to the people who are around you. And the only way that can happen is if we have lives of gratitude where we see where God's placed us. And it may mean a move down the line, but right now in this season, you're called to love the people in front of you. So how do we do this? How do we become people of gratitude? Well, the first thing is I want to encourage you to do is make a daily list of things you're grateful for. Find a journal that's just going to be your gratitude journal. I had a mentor in my life who decided he was not becoming a more gracious person. He decided, I'm going to write five things every single day that I'm grateful for. And he talked about the difference that made in his life. He began to see things he was grateful for that he didn't see before because every day he realized, I've got a list to write. So create that discipline. Go grab a journal this week and begin a practice of every single day. What are the five things? What are the three things that I'm grateful for today? Write those things down and see what God does. Because what I believe is gratitude is a muscle that has to be exercised to be developed. And once we begin to develop that muscle, all of a sudden we begin to see things we didn't see before. We get outside of ourselves. So I encourage you to write those things down. What are the things I'm grateful for today? When your head hits the pillow at night, before you go to sleep, let that be your last thought as you're going to sleep. It's okay if you fall asleep during the, the exercise, but what if your last thought was what you're grateful for rather than all the things you had to do the next day? I wonder if that would change our perspective. Second, after you've written that list of whatever those uh, lists are, those things you're grateful for, I want you to track down the source of that gift. I, I think all of us would admit that behind everything is God as the source, but I want you to track down the human source of the gift that you write down, those five things. Think about it. Everything in our life that we receive as a gift comes at a cost to someone or something else. Everything you eat that you'll eat on Thursday, something had to die in order for you to live, right? Everything we consume was a living thing or a processed food, perhaps. Hopefully not too much of that, right? But we're, everything at some point was something living that had to die in order for us to receive what we need to go on living. If you read a book this week during your time off, a novel maybe, Think about the sacrifice that someone had to give in their life so that you could have the enjoyment of picking up that novel and reading it. Someone gave years of their life to developing the characters in that book, to developing their story. They poured themselves into that. Every time you receive a gift, something is poured out from someone else so that you can receive the overflow and blessing of what they give to you. If you, if you go this week to go see a movie, perhaps, I mean, think about all the hours and the energy that went in to putting that together for your enjoyment on an afternoon on Thanksgiving. 
I mean, a director had to come up with all the lines. People had to give their life to getting into the character. All these people come together to pour out, to sacrifice, so that we can receive and be entertained in the moment. When you dine out with your family, again, sometimes we take this for granted, but think about all the sacrifice. Someone had to go and get the food. Someone had to bring the food there. Someone had had to use their expertise over the years as a chef to cook what's brought before you. A server was giving up some time in order for you to have this experience. The busboy comes and cleans the table before you get there. And it's easy to think that everything didn't go as it should. And it's easy to see that when you see the glasses as, as half empty. But if you see it as half full, you'll begin to see the number of people that sacrifice in order that we might receive. Every week when you come to worship in Bible class, dozens of people sacrifice in order for us to have this time. There are people right now that are serving our children, that are sacrificing so that we can engage in a great way here. There are people who serve and fill up communion every Sunday that we don't see, but it happens every week because people are sacrificing so that others might receive. There are people who are doing all kinds of things in this place. And if we don't see that, it's easy to not be grateful. It's easy to lose gratitude. So look to the source of the gifts we've received. Number three, I want you to not just write down the gifts or track down those gifts to their source, but write a note of encouragement to the person who's the source of that gift. And not an email or a text message, okay? I'm talking about real paper. It's amazing what receiving a letter does for someone. Write a note of encouragement this week to five people, to ten people. Maybe you make this a weekly practice. What are the gifts I have? What are the source behind that gift of someone's cost? And how can I encourage them by writing just a a note of encouragement to thank them for all that they've done? Number four, serve and share with those who are in need. Earlier, we talked about how easy it is to accumulate and assume that if we accumulate more, we'll be happier in some way. But accumulation doesn't lead to gratitude or happiness. Accumulation leads to buying more storage space. So what does it look like for us to find a life of gratitude? Well, I want to take you just quickly to a passage. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where Paul talks about those who are stealing. And he tells them not to steal. But look at what he says here. This is Ephesians 4, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must, do, uh, must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. He says several things. He says, stop stealing if you're doing it. Stop trying to accumulate and grab more. But then he says, work. Put your hands to good use. Don't use your hands to steal and take. Use your hands to bless and to give. And then finally, share with those in need. You see, we have to replace our accumulation with acts of service. Because it's in that service that we begin to become more more gracious. How many of you have ever been on a foreign mission trip before? There's a lot of hands out there. When you came back from that foreign mission trip, did you come back With less gratitude or more gratitude? More every time. And part of it is you go to this place that you realize, wow, look how much I have. I didn't realize it. But but another part of it is the poor. Those who are materially needy have a way of showing us gratitude that we forget about. There are teachers on these trips, aren't they? We begin to see that, oh, I thought accumulation brought this happiness and gratitude. But actually what it is, is it's developing an internal mind to see things that we don't see the more we accumulate and the more progress we receive as a people. So this is important for us to serve, not just so that we can be reminded that others don't have as much as we do, but also to learn from those who are in this place of the gratitude they have without receiving all that we receive to try to get there. 
Because gratitude does not come from accumulating things. Gratitude comes from coming to see everything as a gift. So I want to encourage you over the next week, over the next month, to, to develop these, these habits. Daily list five things you're grateful for. Track down the gift to the source of that gift. Write notes of encouragement and then serve any chance you get and see what God does in the midst of that to make us a more grateful people. Because the outcome of gratitude isn't that we have less. It's that we have more and see more of what God does in it. It's that people are attracted to people who are more gracious people. And that's what we want as a church. It's develop this discipline so that others might see the goodness of our God. Amen? Let's close with prayer as we close our time together. God, we, we thank you for all that you give. And sometimes it's more difficult to see that than others. So would you work in us, even in the difficult times, God, to see the gifts you have, the good, the bad. Uh, you bring uh, good things to us in the midst of both. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Let us track down your goodness and be on uh, as detectives this week to see what you're doing in this world. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.